Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times, data with instant analysis of AEW Full Gear, which capped off an absolutely wild night, really in this nation's history, in the world of college football, and certainly what this show is about the world of professional wrestling. We have so much to get to on this instant analysis that the Silver King does not want to waste much time. What I am going to tell you is I am currently taping the show amid tropical storm winds down here in South Florida, and I just so happen to have a loose gutter on my house that is right outside my window. So you may hear a couple squeaks here and there. I will do the best I can to edit them out of the show, but there's only so much the Silver King can do at 12.45 a.m. on Sunday morning after he finished all of his work. Of course, a couple reminders. Do not forget to follow this show, Getting Over, on Twitter, at Getting Overcast. Also, head on over to Apple Podcasts. Drop us a five-star rating and review. Let us know how much you love the show. Stop being marks for yourselves and... Go back to being a mark for me. Go back to being marks for the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. You know we love it, and it helps us grow when you drop those five-star reviews. It means more people get to see the show. But with all of that in the bank now, let's immediately hop in to the AEW Full Gear Instant Analysis. And the way we do these is we start usually with the biggest match on the show and work our way down. We don't go in card order. That's what we do for the ultimate uh, preview. Uh, we try to go from worst to best. Here we basically go best to worst. But what I am going to do is talk about the opening of the show. And I thought AEW deserves a lot of credit because the full gear intro was quite well done, but also quite detailed. That's important for any casual fan or new fans who might have been watching the show with friends and need to get caught up on everything. AEW also did a really good job giving. Uh, promo packages ahead of each match, again, to catch people up on storylines and let them know who they should be rooting for, or at least why they should be interesting, interested in the individual matches. I also loved the opening pyro and just the look of the overall set. They made Daly's Place look different enough, despite it being the same setting as television. So basically, long story short, I thought the start of the show was really great. I also realized I have cracked open a beer here, and uh, that is also a getting over instant analysis tradition. I wasn't able to crack the can, but I am drinking a caramel cream ale coffee style from Due South Brewing, which, as many of you know, is my favorite brewery here in South Florida. So once again, giving them a shout out. But okay, let's get into the matches. The main event of Full Gear was the AEW World Championship, John Moxley defeating Eddie Kingston in an I quit match to retain the AEW World Championship. It was really cool that Kingston kind of went silent on social media and on AEW programming leading into the match. He also dressed as the late Tracy Summers. I thought that was a nice touch. I had no thought that this match would be a barn burner per se, but it still started even slower than I expected. They quickly went outside to do some stuff. Jumped back in the ring, Moxley grabbed a barbed wire bat, used it on Kingston. Eventually, Kingston unwrapped the barbed wire, wrapped it around his fist, and pounded Moxley's skull with it, including a spinning back fist. Moxley wouldn't tap from a Kimura lock, 
So Kingston dumped a bunch of thumbtacks in the corner, basically threw Moxley like Uranagi style into them. He then crushed Moxley's, we'll say balls, uh, with his boot and then poured rubbing alcohol all over Moxley's back that was already filled with the thumbtack holes. Kingston used Moxley's bulldog choke, but he could not get a tap out, which ended up alluding to what the finish of the match would be. Moxley hit a Minoru Suzuki style pile driver, then a paradigm shift. He wrapped the barbed wire around his forearm and used that as a bulldog choke on Eddie Kingston. You'll remember the previous time he did it, Kingston passed out. The referee basically called a submission. This time it was so painful, Kingston had to say, I quit. And what I loved about this match, despite, yes, it being slow, is it was brutal without being exceedingly bloody, which is what AEW has really leaned on a bit too much in its history. This one was just brutal. There was a little bit of blood, but not that much. It was more about what they were doing and the emotion within each of the moves. I also loved that they did not back out of the stipulation. If you're in an I quit match, you ultimately want the person to say, I quit. That's what Kingston did. And he sold it in such a majestic way Almost, you could see it in his eyes that he was crying out of disappointment because he knew the pain was so great that he had no choice to quit, but simultaneously doing so broke his spirit. So it was a great finish. I would say it was a good main event. Ultimately, the match was probably, you know, like a 3.75 star match. It wasn't anything spectacular, certainly even recently. Uh, We've seen some better hardcore matches, again, even in WWE recently, but this was still exceedingly entertaining. Moxley and Kingston, where they really did their work, was the build to the match and the promos. The the match was kind of just like the whipped cream on top of the sundae. The meat of it's still the ice cream. That's all the promos, but this was that little extra that kind of puts it over the top. So these two did really great work. It was a deserving main event, even though it was not the best match of the night, but nevertheless... I was entertained by it, and they deserve a lot of credit for kind of tearing each other apart. And ultimately, when you have an I quit match, that's what you want. At the end of the match, Kenny Omega came out and confronted Jon Moxley a little bit. I like that they didn't play this out too long or have Omega do attack an attack or have some surprise debut. It was nice just to have a pay-per-view end for once. Or maybe I'm just saying that because this day was so long and I am so freaking exhausted that I didn't want to talk about anything else after that match. But I loved the end to the show. It was simple. You had Moxley retaining the title. We know Moxley Omega is the match everyone wants. It looks like Revolution in February, the new pay-per-view. That will be the direction they go. Obviously, we have a long way until we get there. Speaking of Kenny Omega, we had the finals of the number one contender world title eliminator tournament where Kenny Omega defeated hangman Adam page. I was actually shocked not only to see this open the show because AEW usually builds its pay-per-view cards, mostly what I consider to be the right way from worst to best or least important match to most important match, kind of like what NJPW does. But I wasn't only surprised that this opened the show, but I was surprised Don Callis was on the call considering the dude works for impact. And I know AEW talks about reaching across the aisle and allowing their talent to do stuff. I just didn't think I would see Don Callis on AEW, but it was cool. Um, I do think ultimately this should not have co-main evented, but I did think it probably belonged in the spot where the Young Bucks FTR match was, and then the Young Bucks FTR match should have been the co-main event. 
So I had some issues with the way the card was arranged, but that's truly a nitpick because ultimately you will hear what I thought about this show. So you could tell that Omega and Paige were going to go, go all out here, no pun intended, of course, with all out, to put on the type of match we expected. But at the same token, they did not go as far as they could to give us a five-star classic. And I think that was intentional. I'll explain why momentarily. Paige refused to shake Omega's hand right off the top, started aggressively on offense, including running to the top rope to catch Omega for a superplex. Paige missed a big splash outside. Omega nailed his beautiful Tope Goniro. Uh, Omega then hit a V-trigger over the top rope, knocking Paige onto the entrance where Omega soon ate a pop-up powerbomb outside before eating another one inside. Omega hit a Tiger Driver 98 for a 2.8 count. Paige hit a Deadeye for the same. Omega then came back with a dragon screw on the ropes. Then he avoided the buckshot lariat, nailed two V-triggers and the one-winged angel for the clean one, two, three. Again, a fantastic match. And I'm glad this did not go on too long because from a storyline perspective, the idea is that Paige in his current state should not be that much of a threat to Omega. He should test him significantly, but he should not take him to the ultimate limit. But at the same time, Paige looked awesome throughout the entire match. After it, he was dejected and kind of looked like, yeah, he's going to go further in this downward spiral, spiral, probably find the bottom of the bottle. It was a great match, very entertaining. I'd probably give it around a you know, 4.25, 4.5 star type of rating. And I think that's well-deserved because they both worked their asses off, but it was not what it could have been. And like I said, I believe that was intentional for storytelling purposes. Now we will talk about what was top to bottom. I would probably say the best match on the entire night, the AEW Tag Team Championships on the line, the Young Bucks defeating FTR in a match where if the Young Bucks lost, they would never be able to challenge for the tag team titles again. This started off as a classic tag team match. The rules were followed at the beginning. That did change a little bit later, but it's acceptable. Uh, The meat of the match was repeatedly both teams trading classic tag team finishers. FTR hit the heart attack on Nick Jackson. uh, And then there was a cool spot where Matt Jackson made a blind tag, fooled Dash Wheeler with a spear. Dax Hardwood came in, hit a bulldog off the top rope, kind of as a shout out to the Steiner brothers, before the Young Bucks hit a 3D, followed by the twist of fate and a swanton bomb, odes to the Dudley boys and Hardy boys. There's also a cool rebound powerbomb type of spot with FTR, followed by a roll-up by Matt for a near fall. FTR then called back to actually NXT and did a DIY meeting in the middle finisher, which was a really cool show of respect, and that was probably the most unexpected moment of the entire match. The Bucks both uh, locked the FTR guys and sharpshooters, but Rich Knox never broke the hold when he should have, which was weird. Matsini eventually gave out. He broke the submission himself. The Bucks hit a BTE trigger, or they were going to, I'm sorry, uh, but it was broken up at the last second. Matt grabbed a, a chair, but Dax basically dared him to hit him, knowing it would force a disqualification. Instead, Matt lifted him up for the Meltzer driver, but Wheeler grabbed Nick off the ring apron and power bombed him through a table outside the ring. FTR capitalized with a mindbreaker pile driver. Matt reached the bottom rope with his foot. So then FTR concentrated on his injured ankle, which he sold throughout the entire match. Hardwood and Matt uh, basically 
locked him in an inverted type of figure four with an ankle lock. But Wheeler dove out of the ring, missed Nick as he came back to break the hold with a 450 splash in an awesome moment. Wheeler, a little bit later, missed a springboard 450. The fact that he could even do it was really impressive. And that was obviously a call of FTR trying to go above and beyond and do something not in their character. And of course, they met their demise because of it, because Matt hit a very simple super kick for the victory, which I thought was an interesting finish. Not so much with FTR, you know, going out of character and that being the reason they lost, but Matt just winning with a super kick. Yes, the Young Bucks super kick party, I get it, but you would think at the tail end of that match, they would need a little bit more than that. Nevertheless, not too big of a demerit. Uh, Omega ran down afterwards to celebrate as the original elite all won on the same night, which goes back to what I was talking about in the ultimate preview. And I've actually been talking about for a couple of weeks of the year ending with the elite again on top of AEW. Will that be the case? We will find out. Page, by the way, a lot of people didn't see this. He was actually watching from the corner of the entry ramp the entire time, but didn't join them in the ring. So expect that to be referenced, I'm sure on BTE, although I have not seen that in quite some time, perhaps on Dynamite, but it does seem like Page and the Elite will still be involved in a storyline. Ultimately, this match, it was a great tag team match. It may have been a bit too cute for some of you with all of the callbacks, but I think the point was ultimately for it to be an ode to great tag team wrestling while FTR and the Young Bucks eventually put a modern spin on it as we got into the finish in the final, let's say, 10 minutes of the match. Don't forget, AEW caters to the internet wrestling community, so they want to pop the fans with all those types of old-school finishers. Matt, you know, he sold his ankle the entire time. That's been the storyline. It was reported that he had two injured ligaments, and therefore, some people didn't expect the Young Bucks to win the titles. I think that news either got planted... Uh, to kind of keep the IWC in kayfabe, or if not that, then the journalist who reported that is clearly working with AEW. So that's a whole nother conversation for another day. Um, I I would say there was a bit too much of the swapping old school finishers and you know some of the stuff like that early in the match for me to go with five stars, especially when you realize that this match, there had been six years of hype building up to it. Now, some people may give it five stars. They may give it more than that. The tag team match earlier in the year, Kenny Omega and Hangman Page against the Young Bucks, that is a five-star tag team match. That, to me, is still the best tag team match of the year, at least for men. Actually, just probably period. But this was really good. It was in that 4.5-star range. They deserve that credit. And... It was, like I said, the best match to that point in the night. And ultimately, because I was holding out to see what would happen in the final couple of matches, it ended up being the best match of the entire night. Now, the ultimate co-main event ended up being MJF defeating Chris Jericho in a one-on-one match with a stipulation where if MJF won, he would get to join the inner circle. Now, MJF was great throughout this entire match. He popped me doing his entrance like Jericho used to do with a light-up jacket in WWE. And then Jericho popped me, grabbing the camera like he always does in New Japan, right in the middle of the match. They wrestled a slow, very WWE-style type of match and spent a lot of time working on each other's arms. MJF missed the lion salt 
Jericho capitalized with a codebreaker. MJF then blocked the Judas effect, which was a pretty cool moment, turned it into an arm bar, which I don't know if it was a reference back to Jericho's WCW promo of about Dean Malenko, like the man of a thousand holds or whatever, but I think it was. And I hope that I'm right about that. I'd love to ask Chris Jericho about that someday. But Jericho got out of the arm bar and Wardlow ran down with the diamond ring. Jericho avoided it when MJF tried to hit him with it, called for the bat from his inner circle people. Uh, They throw the bat into the ring. He winds up getting ready to hit MJF. And then MJF pulls a perfect classic Eddie Guerrero style heel move, gives Jericho the double bird, pretends that he got hit with the bat, falls onto the canvas. Uh, Jericho starts arguing with Aubrey Edwards, who did great in her role in this match as well. And then MJF rolls him up from behind, him being Jericho, for the win. So while I thought this match, legitimately, until the final three minutes, was seriously boring, the finish was incredibly smart, with MJF baiting and then outsmarting Jericho. Jericho, after the match, welcomed MJF into and Wardlow, by the way, into the inner circle as Jericho and MJF hugged. And then MJF sat on the ropes to let Jericho out of the ring. I liked that Jericho immediately bought into it and they didn't waste the stipulation and not deliver on the storyline. That's basically something AEW consistently does. If they have a storyline, if they have a stipulation, they ultimately usually deliver on it. And that's what we got here as well. So I was very entertained by this match. The finish was extremely smart, and that's why that deserves a lot of credit. We also had a TNT title match where Darby Allen defeated Cody to win the TNT title to become the third ever person to hold the TNT title. Uh, Darby made his entrance in a spray-painted car and broke another window with his skateboard. Cody came down with like 17 people and a hugely exaggerated entrance. I always find both of those things hysterical. They also used the Cody Rhodes name because WWE decided to give him that trademark. So now he's Cody Rhodes and people online were making a big deal about that. Cool. Um, He's Cody Rhodes now. Watching the intros, just the intros and the pre-match stuff. To me, it was completely obvious there was going to be a title change. It was almost looking like it was Darby Allen against the world. And you can see it also in the face-off between the two before the match. Cody dominated most of the early match, used his size and strength to keep Darby on the ground, even when he tried to do high-risk moves or springboard type of stuff. It was strange that Cody concentrated so much on Darby's arms when he should have been going after his legs. Like, what purpose does Arn Anderson even serve as his coach if they're not going to plan to take out the guy's finisher, which you would do by not allowing him to get to the top rope? Anyway, Cody hit a really cool power slam from the second rope, but soon after Darby found some momentum, hit a Canadian destroyer. Cody came back with an avalanche crossroads that should have ended the match, except Darby flew all the way to the other side of the ring and had his arm under the bottom rope. For some reason, Mike Chioda didn't notice that the arm was under the bottom rope until he was about to count to three. Darby climbed on Cody's back, so Cody basically just fell off the top rope and drilled basically Darby directly into the mat, which was a cool spot. They made Darby fight from under for a long time in this match. Cody just dominated him the majority of the time. Darby found a bunch of consistent offense. Then he hit a coffin drop only to see Cody kick out a 2.8. They traded a bunch of roll-up attempts, pinning combinations, until Darby finally came out out of all those combinations with the 1-2-3. The title change, like I said, it was telegraphed the entire time, but it didn't hurt the match 
because they told such a consistent, thorough story with the entire point of Darby Allen overcoming a ton of adversity. Cody grabbed the TNT title after the match, he bent the knee and he handed it to Darby Allen. After a little bit of celebration, Taz kind of distracted both guys while Brian Cage and Ricky Starks attacked them. Starks speared Darby, Cage and Starks then tugged on the TNT title, basically meaning both of them want a shot at Darby Allen. Before Cage took Darby to some random sign, like outside the ring and tossed him through it, they then went to crush Darby's arm in the door of his car until Will Hobbs ran in for the save. So I guess he's not joining Team Taz after all. I don't mind a storyline after a match, but this thing dragged. It would have been way better if Darby was like celebrating at the start of Dynamite and then they did all of this to him. The sign spot was stupid. It took way too long and it took you out of the emotion and it ruined the moment of Darby Allen being crowned the face of TNT, which was basically what the Rush storyline was all about in the first place. So they didn't really spend time allowing the fans to enjoy the babyface winning the title. And it just, for me, that was a mess. That said, the match got Darby Allen back where he needed to be, ultimately. I may not like the vignettes or the storytelling with him or the character, but his wrestling talent is unquestioned. The back and forth of trading the TNT title with Brody Lee looks even stupider in retrospect from a booking standpoint. Now that Cody has basically just served as a transitional champion, how much better would it have been if Cody was champion this entire time and Darby Allen was the guy to beat Cody, a guy who didn't lose to Lance Archer and maybe didn't lose to Brody Lee. So I still think that booking was stupid, but at least we finally have some fresh blood in an AEW men's championship picture. Darby is the first men's singles champion in AEW who was not previously in WWE for a significant period of time. And he's the first guy who wasn't an executive or an original AEW guy to hold any men's title in AEW. So I'm talking about, yeah, SCU. They were all like original signees, Hangman Page as well. Darby Allen is the first guy after over a year of television that AEW signed as basically a pure AEW, like this is a talent we're gonna build to actually get an opportunity to get built. So I'm really excited that he gets that chance. This was a very good match. I don't know where I'd rank it among all of them on the show, maybe the third best match on the show. And that's totally fine because there were some great matches on this damn show. So both Cody and Darby deserve a lot of credit. Uh, we had an AEW Women's Championship match, Akari Shida defeating Nyla Rose, I'm sorry. The early spot on this match was Rose hitting Shida with a flying knee from the top turnbuckle while Shida was hung up on the top rope. Rose hit a kneeling powerbomb, but picked Shida's head up, then hit her with a running knee and sat on her chest, but Shida kicked out at one. Shida then hit an avalanche falcon arrow and picked Rose's head up at two, almost like playing the game that she was playing, but that should have been the finish to the match. An avalanche falcon arrow in a women's match, in any match, I'm sorry, should end the match. Would have been a way better finish. Instead from there, the match was completely overbooked. Vicky Guerrero grabbed Sheeta's leg as she went for her finisher. Rose knocked Sheeta outside. Then Sheeta shoved Rose into Vicky. And then Sheeta hit a falcon arrow with Rose kicking out at two. So she had a couple Tomashitas and eventually got the one, two, three on Rose. And then Vicky Guerrero yelled, yelled at Nyla Rose after the match. This did not live up to their first match, which was very good, but this was a fine match. Vicky 
Guerrero. I don't get what she's doing. The overbooking of this ruined the entire thing. Credit to AEW for actually giving them time, unlike the five minutes the women get each week on Dynamite. But I don't get the point of putting Vicky Guerrero with Nyla Rose if she's not going to win the title. What was the point of even having the match if they weren't going to build the storyline or change the title? Ultimately, it was fine for what it was, but it did feel like it was forced on the card. And again, Sheeta is a great women's champion. She's probably, as of right now, the best women's wrestler in AEW, but they don't even show her on television as champion. So I don't really get the reason of keeping the title on her, but it was a fine match. We also had the elite deletion, Matt Hardy, ultimately defeating Sammy Guevara. Uh, This took place at the Hardy compound as a cinematic match. That's what we all expected. But it was strange that AEW never spent any time on television establishing the Hardy compound as its own universe. It just kind of ignored it and assumed that every AEW fan had known exactly everything about the Hardy compound, had watched all the YouTube videos, had seen all the stuff in WWE and all the stuff in Impact. Uh, Guevara rolled up in a golf cart and that was a fun callback. Hardy ran him right over with a monster truck. It was weird that, by the way, that AEW did commentary over the entire segment. And uh, being fair here, it was largely boring with the guys brawling amongst trees until they eventually found a ring. Hardy powerbombed Sammy through a table only for suddenly Santana and Ortiz to show up. Then Private Party comes out. Hardy starts setting off fireworks for no reason. And then Sammy does too. Hardy and Sammy then ran off into the woods as the other four basically had a tag team match in in a ring for a few minutes. Hardy finally hit Sammy with some fireworks, then a twist of fate into the mud. And that was, by the way, a shot at Jim Cornette. Uh, And then was about to throw him into the Lake of Reincarnation when Gangrel shows up with Hurricane Helms. Gangrel gets attacked by Private Party. Hardy releases Helms from his handcuffs, and then Hardy completely breaks the fourth wall, talking about long-term storytelling and having to get to AEW in order to finish the storyline that he started in WWE and continued on his YouTube show. Sammy then throws Helms into the Lake of Reincarnation a couple times, so he keeps changing. They all wound up, by they all, I mean Hardy and Sammy, inside the Dome of Deletion that had a ton of weapons, and Sammy started out by choking Hardy with a ring rope. He then climbed onto a huge ladder, hit a swanton bomb onto Hardy through a table and he got a two count. So that was ridiculous. Hardy hit a twist of fate and then speared Sammy out of the ring through a table, then hit Sammy in the face with the end of a chair as payback for the dynamite spot that went odd when Sammy threw a chair at Hardy's head. Hardy then knocked him out cold with a concerto style hit with his head on the concrete for the one, two, three to end the match. Sammy looked like he was dead, blood coming out of his mouth, blood basically coming out of everywhere. And then Private Party shows up after they open the Dome of Deletion to throw him in a trash can and load him into the back of a truck. This match, this cinematic match, the Elite Deletion, it started off terribly. I thought it was going to be an epic failure. I was ready to give it an F. But once they got inside the Dome of Deletion, I was fully entertained by the actual wrestling and the spot fest. I didn't expect Hardy to go over so strong against a guy that you would think AEW is trying to build for the future. But the finish and the stuff inside the Dome, it turned an F into like a C- minus or something like that. 
So it did not come anywhere near living up to the best cinematic matches of this era. But somehow at the end, it ultimately ended up not being the worst either. So I guess they deserve some credit for that. We also had Orange Cassidy defeat John Silver. This was an incredibly athletic and exciting match. It was almost wrestled in a cruiserweight style, which makes you think AEW could actually have a pretty strong cruiserweight division if it went in that direction, especially considering how loaded the roster has become. Silver did an awesome one-handed press of Orange Cassidy and later Orange Cassidy hit the Superman punch and won with the beach break. And he may have regained a little bit of juice after all of these losses that have unnecessarily been given to Orange Cassidy based on booking. But I will say from my what I was talking about in the Ultimate Preview, I was 100% right. This should have been the buy-in match. This should not have been on the main card and they did not need another buy-in match. This was a perfect kickoff show match. Instead, they threw it on the main card. It felt out of place. It felt unnecessary. And it contributed to the show going way too long. So again, next time, put that on the kickoff show. The kickoff show match, the buy-in, was actually an NWA Women's Championship match. Serena Deeb defeating Allison Kay to retain her title. I'm just gonna be candid with you all. I didn't see the match. I was focused on other things that were happening in the world leading into the start of the pay-per-view. I did see Thunder Rosa show up afterward to confront Deeb, but it didn't seem like much happened otherwise than just Deeb getting a win. What I think is hysterical, by the way, is that AEW actually does a better job of telling NWA storylines for its title than AEW's own women's title. But okay, that's a breakdown of every match. Now, the thing I do uh, after every single pay-per-view, we post a poll on our Twitter account at Getting Overcast, and I ask you, the listeners, you, the fans, what your final grade is for the pay-per-view. So I asked that again tonight, and the final grades that we got for AEW Full Gear, 31% said it was an A, 39% said it was a B, and then about 15% each, 17% and 14% said it was a C or a D to an F. So I was really surprised that 14%, 15% of people said D to F. I'm throwing that out. I don't even know how you could come up with that because this was a damn good show. Could I see some people thinking it was a C? You know, possibly. I don't think there was a five-star match on the show. And if you go into every AEW pay-per-view expecting a five-star match, then maybe you were a little upset you didn't get one. But those matches, the three matches I talked about, were all between like 4.25 and 4.75 stars in some of that type of range where you got to give them credit for putting on some damn good matches. So 39% B, 31% A. That means 70% of respondents thought it was a very good pay-per-view. And that is where the Silver King leans as well. This top to bottom, in my opinion, was the best AEW pay-per-view that we have seen to date. And honestly, going into it, that was my expectation considering the quality of the card. This thing was loaded and it absolutely delivered. Now, I won't say any of the individual matches were the best that AEW has offered, though they were very good. There have been other AEW events where we've had a five-star match. I'm trying to think if we ever had two or maybe a five and a 4.5, but we've had two matches on other pay-per-views that have been better than the best two on this show. But if you're going to nitpick and say, just because I didn't get a five-star match, this can't be an A show, I think that's ridiculous. When you put this entire show together, 
It was four hours of mostly top-tier wrestling, and AEW badly needed a show like this because AEW All Out, its last pay-per-view, was probably the worst pay-per-view it's put out except for those free shows that AEW put on before Dynamite ever debuted. So coming off the worst pay-per-view, I think we got top to bottom the best pay-per-view. Now, how does it compare to everything else we've seen this year? That's gonna be a question we answer next month in our Getting Over Year End Awards. But as far as my final grade coming out of AEW All Out, I'm right in between a B plus and an A minus. I'm putting it right on par with some of the better WWE pay-per-views we've gotten over the past four months. And that is not a slight to AEW because you can think whatever you want about the WWE product, but at least three of their last four pay-per-views, maybe all four of them, have delivered in a massive way. So this is right up there with those. It's right up there with the best American wrestling pay-per-views that we've seen this year. So I'm gonna go A minus B plus in that range. I don't have a final grade yet. I'm gonna watch some of these matches again and try to come up with one. But what I can tell you is the Silver King absolutely loved AEW Full Gear. The company deserves a lot of credit. Really smart booking. It wasn't even the match quality that I liked. It was the booking that was really smart. That's to me what put it over the top. So maybe I will go A minus now that I'm kind of talking myself into it. Nevertheless, the point Full Gear was great. If you listen to this review and you have not seen it, I do highly suggest purchasing it and checking it out. I also highly suggest heading on over to Apple Podcasts and leaving a five-star rating and review for your favorite wrestling podcast, Getting Over. Once again, every single time you guys leave a rating and review, it helps us. We push up in the rankings on iTunes. It's good for this show. Also, do not forget to follow us at Getting Overcast on Twitter. We have a ton of stuff coming up in the Getting Over universe. Not only are we back Tuesday with a full breakdown of WWE SmackDown and Raw, we will come back on Thursday with a breakdown of NXT and AEW Dynamite. Before the end of the year, we will have a 100th episode spectacular. I have already secured one fantastic interview, whether it's for that show, whether it's around that show. I've already secured a great interview, and I have plans to get three or four more. We are going to blow the hell out of getting over in December. Not only do we have the 100th episode spectacular, not only do we have all these interviews coming up, we will have the getting over first annual year-end awards where we will pick the best in the world of professional wrestling in 2020, and we're not going to be the only ones doing it. All of you listeners will be able to contribute. And for those of you who contributed to the start of the show, who sent money into the Silver King to help me purchase this equipment that you're hearing my now gravelly voice on as we approach 1.16 a.m. in the Eastern Time Zone. Uh, For all of you who donated, I have not forgotten about you. Do not worry. We have very special shows and very special things that we're going to do. I don't want to spoil any of the fun, but they're all coming up. I have not forgotten. 2020 has been crazy. Unfortunately, every time I try to do one thing, something else takes precedence. But I am thrilled that all of you listen to this podcast. I love the love that we receive on Twitter and DMs 
and the reviews are fantastic. We want to get those reviews up. We want to get the listenership up. I want to bring you more getting over than ever before as we get towards the end of the year and into 2021. So thank you once again for listening to our instant analysis of AEW Full Gear. We will be back on Tuesday with your WWE show. So with that, the Silver King only has three words left for you. Bye for now.